Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing well. And for this episode, Lance, we kind of uh, take it down a notch um, from what's been going on the past few weeks and uh, sort of sidestep a little bit and talk to an expert. We talked to old friend Elizabeth Yardley. She's from the UK. We had spoke to her before when she joined us with her colleague, uh, David Wilson. They wrote a paper called uh, The Wound Culture, and it's about the community that gets involved or individuals that get involved in a community like um, uh, true crime uh, obsessed type people that get involved with cases. And and it turns into uh, dangerous situations or unsavory situations. Yes. And Elizabeth Yardley is a professor of criminology at Birmingham City University in Birmingham, England. 
and uh, she talks about violence and homicide. And she used to do a podcast. We spoke to her a few times on Crawl Space, too, maybe twice on Crawl Space. And she did a podcast called Crime Bites that is not currently running any new episodes, but maybe uh, back at some point in the future. But there's a lot of good um, older archived episodes there. And Elizabeth also just launched a blog at elizabethyardley.com. Links in the show notes. It's always good to talk to her because she knows what she's talking about. She's well-researched. Uh, her podcast, Crime Bites, was amazing. But as a professor, uh, an esteemed professor at Birmingham City University, uh, she just couldn't find the time to keep up with it. Uh, and like you said, hopefully she'll be coming back around with new episodes of that because it is super interesting. And uh, and I think people will learn a lot uh, listening to listening to her speak on this show, her old show, and, and reading her blog. Okay, so let's get to the interview, Lance. Thanks a lot for listening. Professor Liz Yardley, welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks very much for having me back on the podcast. Oh, it's been too long since we heard the uh, those uh, those British tones, which make me feel so good <laughs> because it's like... Uh, the intelligence level has just risen exponentially here. I didn't even know. Oh, I to, don't know about that. I didn't even know if exponentially <laughs> was a word before we had this interview. Yeah. Before I just said it. He's saying all sorts of big words now, Liz. <laughs> yeah, I don't have many big words today. I'm going to try and keep it simple, I think. <laughs> it's about all my brain can process in my post-Christmas haze. <laughs> and do you still carry the same uh, title, uh, Deputy Director of the Center for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Uh, so now I'm just a professor of criminology at Birmingham City University. I've um, handed over the baton to uh, the lovely Dr. Laura Hammond, who's got the pleasure of running the research center now. So that's freed up a bit more of my time for, for writing and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, very good. Very good. And, and not just, but still a very uh, prestigious uh, title to have. Yeah. A professor of criminology at Birmingham City University. I, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds quite quite all right, doesn't it? Yeah, not bad. <laughs> so, what do you do as as professor of criminology? Um, so, I spend roughly about half of my time doing research, and my specialist areas are homicide and violent crime. And I've got a specific focus on um, the relationship between crime, media, and culture. So how the media helps us make sense of crime or how it doesn't in a lot of cases. And I've also recently started looking at the role of technology in violent crime, especially domestic violence. So how perpetrators use network technologies like smartphones and GPS trackers to uh, perpetrate abuse. So, mm. yeah, I've got a really, really interesting job. And then the other half of my time is spent teaching. Um, so I teach our undergraduate students and I I teach our, our PhD students as well. Um, so it's a, it's a really, really fortunate position to be in. I really do love what I do. Now, we previously had you on the show because you and your colleague, Professor David Wilson, wrote a research paper about something called the wound culture, and that's W-O-U-N-D. And it focuses on individuals who sort of infiltrate family members and look at cases and they're, they're citizen detectives, but they take it too far. And since we spoke to you, Tim and I, through our experience with all of this, have seen instances of this now that we're aware of it. 
Yeah, when you know what to look for, you do start to see it everywhere. Um, and and the, the inspiration for that paper came out of the podcast Serial, uh, because all of us in the criminology department listened to Serial, um, but we also kept quite a close eye on the reaction to it, especially on, on social media and forums like Reddit. And, and we were quite interested in, in how people were making sense of it online and how people were engaging with the case and people around the case. Um, and yeah, it really did embody this idea of a wound culture. Um, and basically the idea of wound culture is that, that when we're, we become obsessed with serial killers or true crime documentaries or, or that kind of thing, um, it's not just about us having like a taste for violence and a kind of grisly sort of curiosity, um, but it says something more widely about us as a society in that actually trauma and, and death and, and horrible things like that are one of the last things that we, we kind of convene around, that we uh, become a collective around because we live in a very individualistic culture. Um, and trauma is one of the few things that, that actually unite people. And I find this in my everyday life as well. Um, you can strike up conversations with people just by mentioning, you know, the, the latest high profile case that's, that's in the news. Um, and everybody will have an opinion on that. But if you try to talk to them about uh, another topic, they might think, you know, that you were a bit strange or that you were a bit odd. But, but people always come together, I find, around trauma. That's a really interesting point. I never really uh, realized that. And I guess what comes with the trauma is the mystery of how that trauma uh, came to be. So there you have your citizen detective types, I suppose. Exactly. And what I found really interesting in observing the wound culture over the last few years is that actually we, we do become quite fixated on the individual cases, on the people around them. And very often we don't take a step back and, and think, well, how did this trauma come about in the first place? What was it that, that drove a particular individual to make a decision that caused harm to somebody else? Um, and more recently, I've been looking at the, the social context of trauma, looking at the actual structure of our society. And if we think about neoliberal capitalism, and we think of some of the values and the attitudes that that encourages, this kind of selfish individualism, hostile competition, narcissism, those sorts of things. You, you do start to, to see that playing out in individual behavior. I want to get back to the narcissist angle mm -hmm. that you mentioned. But first, I have a question about how one of these types will infiltrate a family who is affected by a tragedy like this, whether it's a missing person or a cold case? Yeah, I think often when when we look at, at, at cases like the Maura Murray case, um, the, there is, I think, a, an opportunity there for some people um, to be seen to be helpful, to be useful, to, to contribute towards the case. And sometimes that is out of a, a willingness to help other people, um, to want to actually ease other people's trauma and use their skills and their expertise in, in doing so. But I think some of these cases for other people can provide a platform for, um, for their own egos, essentially. And if you think about the, how, how the, the discussion around this case initially started in the online forums, I mean, forums, in theory, I suppose they should be uh, collective, 
Um, they should be non-hierarchical. They're very much a kind of grassroots approach to, to problem solving. But I think in recent years, they've turned very much into, well, for some people at least, kind of ego contests for people who are status seeking and, and wanting to make a name for themselves in relation to a particular case. How dare you come on to our show and uh, accuse us of being uh, people like this? I am so offended right now. <laughs> you've got him. You've got him all worked up, Liz. He's all where I can't. I, he's on. He's on. He's thrown his headphones. His head, they've broken. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Control no. yourself. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Uh, are these people typically victims of abuse themselves? Well, this is the interesting thing because a lot of my work, I've, I've worked with both victims and offenders of, of some very serious violent crimes and people who perpetrate serious harm towards others. Um, that violence, that abuse that they perpetrate is very often a, a symptom of of their own trauma. It, it's come from experiences that they've had when they were younger, very often in, in early childhood. Um, and that sort of thing. We often see kind of biographies of abuse and neglects and, and that kind of experience. But it's important to emphasize at the same time that not everybody who has a difficult childhood or experiences adversity goes on to harm other people. Actually, it's a very small minority of, of people that will do that. Um, and I think the, the question of control is, is quite a central one because when people have experienced in their, their early lives, their childhoods, a lack of control over their existence, that can sometimes translate into an intense need to be in control in their adulthood. And for some people that will manifest itself in terms of internalizing that trauma. Um, so um, developing some kind of alcohol or substance dependency, um, having problematic relationships, eating disorders, that kind of thing. Other people might externalize it and will focus their efforts to regain control on causing harm to other people. So essentially by controlling other people. What kind of uh, occupation would someone like this typically have? Um, well, it's it's really going to vary, um, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, sometimes people's occupations are are a matter of of, of choice, and and they they follow things that that they're they're passionate about. Um, but but you need kind of resources to be able to do that sort of thing. So. So very often people uh, from more disadvantaged backgrounds um, might have you know, a completely different occupation to the one that is the thing that they are passionate about. So, so there doesn't seem to be very much, I think, of a, a correlation between particular personality types and, and particular types of, of work. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned something about these people needing to fulfill a, a sort of ego by doing uh, mm. th these things. Is that why a lot of these arguments are taken online and a lot of the passion and and I guess um, aggressiveness is taken online for the public to see? Does that feed the ego? Yeah, because it provides a platform for a performance, essentially. And if we think about some of the the values that, that we have in our society that inform our, our way of life. They are about hostile competition. They're about winning and they're about success that's premised on the failure of other people. And I think that's when you start to see some of the, the nastier behaviors coming in because it's, it's not enough for, for us as citizens to just thrive 
on our own. You know, this has to come at the expense of, of somebody else. And so it's it, it can be quite, quite damaging behavior. So, Liz, I, I noticed that you uh, launched a blog at uh, ElizabethYardley.com. Um, yes, was that a I re- did. A yeah, it's venture? something that I've been procrastinating about for probably about five years now. And I found myself with half a day spare over the Christmas holidays. So I decided to um, <laughs> set one up. <laughs> it doesn't count as procrastinating when you say it in that accent, just so you know. It sound, yeah, it's, it's, called, it's called planning. <laughs> but, uh, You're being you, pragmatic. Your January 2nd blog, it's called The Snapping Myth. And uh, snapping is quote unquote. Uh, the snapping myth, men who kill women are exerting control, not losing it. Absolutely. And it's about domest- yeah, it's about domestic uh, homicide. Yeah, can you uh, talk a little bit about this one? Yeah, definitely. So um, part of my research involves looking at, at domestic violence and, and domestic homicide. Um, and very often when I see reports of, of cases of domestic homicide where men have killed their their current or their former intimate partners, they're portrayed as having lost it or snapped or, or the red mist had descended. And they, they, they lose control of their behavior and they, they kill their partner or ex-partner. And that is not what happens at all. Um, in these cases, there is always in my experience, a history of controlling or abusive or coercive behavior. And the important thing to emphasize is that that doesn't always have to include violence. uh, Because when we see cases of domestic homicide, they're all about control. They're about maintaining control. And in abusive relationships, um, many abusers will maintain control in ways that don't involve them being violent. They won't have to resort to violence. Um, They will control their partners in other ways. Um, So they might control um, where they they go, when they go out, whether they're allowed to go to work or not, um, what they can wear, who they can interact with. And if they can maintain control in that way, um, they they won't resort to violence. So even when you have a domestic homicide that appears to have come, quote, out of the blue, it really hasn't. There's a history of controlling behavior. Okay, but controlling behavior is different from uh, just like a, a psycho, a psychopath or something like that. Um, well, we, we do often find that um, when we have a, a case of, of homicide, if the person has psychopathic traits, um, they they may be prone to try and control other people um, because that's that's something that they just want to do. Um, they feel entitled to do it. They quite enjoy doing it in some cases. Um, they enjoy playing with people. They're, they're kind of like puppet masters. Um, but I think it's important to distinguish between um, two different terms here because when we use the term psycho, some people will um, associate that with um, psychosis. And that is a, a mental health condition where somebody isn't in control of their, their actions. Um, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing is wrong. They're being often compelled to behave in that way by forces beyond their control. But when we, we look at psychopathy, 
that refers to essentially a personality disorder. So uh, people who are psychopaths know what they're doing. They're in control of their behavior. They could choose not to behave in harmful ways, um, but they make the decision that they are going to behave in harmful ways. So um, psychopaths are, are, are quite, it's quite a scary concept. You know, there are these people who don't have empathy, don't have feelings for others. They are emotionally empty. Um, and and very dangerous individuals potentially. And how good are these people at uh, coercing others into doing uh, things that they want them to do who aren't their significant other? Does that make sense? I think I phrased that. Yes. Yeah, psychopaths can be incredibly manipulative. Um, And one of the traits that's associated with psychopathy is is superficial charm. Um, So they will, they will, really kind of seduce people, um, even, you know, people who aren't their, their intimate partners, people who they don't have sexual relationships with. They, they know how to make people feel important because psychopaths are very good at reading other people's behavior. They know the kind of things that they will need to say and do to other people to get them to do the things that they want. So they will learn very quickly which buttons to press, what things work well, in getting people to fall into line, what things don't work quite so well. Um, and when you, you look at um, individuals like Ted Bundy, you know, he was was clearly a psychopath, but very charming, very charismatic, um, and, and very the kind of person that, that makes you feel good to be around. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Now, would a psychopath who wants to convince somebody to do something or not do something, is it outside the realm of possibility that they would threaten to hurt themselves or, you know, maybe even go so far as to threaten to kill themselves or make the attempt to do it, knowing that they're not going to uh, succumb to those injuries, but they want the um, they want the person that they're trying to influence to see the effect or the perceived effect that it has on them? That's something that I've come across quite a lot in my work, actually, especially in the the domestic violence context, um, where perpetrators will threaten to uh, commit suicide. They will threaten to self-harm. And and the the purpose of of that, that threat, is that it takes the focus away from from the the situation that's there and serves to, to make the perpetrator the victim and to, to make the victim essentially blame themselves for their, their situation. So it's a very manipulative, a very controlling tactic. Uh, it's also seen in, in narcissistic individuals. It's, it's very much a, a me, myself and I kind of behavior because there's no consideration for, for what impact those kind of statements or threats will have on the person that they're, they're being made to. Okay. And uh, you mentioned uh, a minute ago that we were talking about um, control in, uh, in, in domestic violence cases and uh, cases specifically that end up in crime or in murder. Um, I, I'm curious, is, is the, the woman, or I should say one of the partners, does the risk begin when their partner starts to lose perceived control? Yes. Um, there's, there's a really, really interesting piece of research that's not long been published um, called the Domestic Homicide Timeline uh, by a, an academic called Dr. Jane Monkton-Smith. And she's based at the University of Gloucestershire in the UK. And she's identified eight stages in domestic homicide. And she looks at the, the stage 
that the stages that precede the homicide are those in which the perpetrator believes that they have lost control of the victim and that they are not going to to get that control back. So the the way in which they they proceed from that point is is to to exercise the ultimate form of control, which is is a homicide. And these these cases are are cases where the perpetrators are not snapping. Uh, very often they are they are planning out these these homicides. They are researching how to commit them. They're figuring out what they'll do afterwards. Um, so so that's that's definitely something that happens. And and very often the the trigger for those types of of homicide will be um, the the victim having removed their commitments from the perpetrator. So they may have said, I'm going to leave the relationship. They may have left the relationship. The perpetrator might believe that um, his partner has cheated on him. And these are all perceived things very often rather than real things. Um, So there will be a break in the the commitments um, from the victim to the the perpetrator. And that will be the thing that, that initiates those later stages. Is it typical for the perpetrator to go on to another relationship after committing these acts in in the previous relationship and uh, have the same paranoid uh, tendencies and the same uh, result because of this uh, need to control? Does it escalate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the kind of behaviors that drive um, control and abuse are very much deeply entrenched. And unless a perpetrator decides to change those behaviours and commits to a process of change, they will continue to to have those kind of interactions with other people. And and we find that most perpetrators of domestic abuse are serial perpetrators. Um, and and that emphasises the, the fact that the problem is with the perpetrator. It's it's not with the victim. Um, they will go from from one intimate relationship to the next, not changing their behavior and in some cases intensifying it. And I'm looking at a a stat here from from your blog post. Um, It says 82% of 293 female domestic homicide victims had been killed by a partner or an ex. And of the 107 male domestic homicide victims, only 42% had been killed by a partner or an ex. That's uh, British statistics, right? Yes. So biological sex is really, really important when we look at domestic homicide. So when we look at who women are most likely to be killed by, it's it's current or former intimate partners. When we look at who men are most likely to be killed by, it's strangers or acquaintances. So, so women are they are most at risk from the very people who should be taking care of them. Um, that. The, the myth around the murder of women, um, that they're killed by strangers who jump out of the bushes in the park, um, really is is completely false. Most women who are killed are killed by people they know, and those people most often are intimate partners or former intimate partners. What is the difference or where is the line between being a, a narcissist? I've, I've been recently uh, sort of... Uh, exploring the this new concept to my to me I've never never really heard of this until I heard of this book called The Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissist by Debbie Mears uh so I'd never heard of that concept before I had obviously heard about a narcissist but this covert passive aggressive narcissist is really fascinating to me uh 
what is the difference between or where's the line between being the covert passive aggressive narcissist and a, a full psychopath? Because they they both share the uh, lack of empathy trait, I believe. Yeah, I think that the key difference between psychopaths and narcissists is that psychopaths are essentially cold and emotionally empty. I think with narcissists, that there is much more of a, an emotional current running through them. Um, psychopaths often won't care about what other people think of them. Narcissists are obsessed with what other people think of them in terms of the way that they present themselves to the world. Um, so, so narcissists are very much about preserving the image that they're putting out there. They are their own kind of marketing managers. Um, but with psychopaths, there isn't that much, um, or there isn't as, as much of an emphasis on that. But you can still have psychopaths who have narcissistic traits. So is it more dangerous to, I, this sounds like a dumb question, is it more dangerous to be involved with a, a narcissist or a psychopath? I think each of those personality types will bring about particular challenges. But essentially, what you've got with, with both psychopathy and narcissism is that you have a partner who is, is not looking at you as an equal in a, in a, a relationship of mutuality and, and respect and reciprocity. Um, they are looking at you in a completely different way. Um, so psychopaths, um, are people who will use others. They are parasitic. They will get out of other people what they want and then they will then discard them. Um, narcissists will, will look to relationships to basically bolster their, their sense of self to, to reinforce the, the projection of themselves that they are making to, to the rest of the world. So one thing's for certain, whether you're in a relationship with a narcissist or a psychopath, um, you are not their number one priority. It's always about them. Is there any way that multiple narcissists can operate in unison in order to pull the wool over uh, the eyes of, of particular, I'm getting back to wound culture, is are there are there narcissists that are involved in wound culture that can operate in unison without out narcissizing the the other? Um, I think that would be kind of problematic because the thing about narcissists is that they've got three priorities: it's me, myself, and I. And whilst they they may use other people to further their their own ends and and enhance their own image, that's going to be a fairly short lived thing, I think, because working collectively um working for for a common goal is is something that narcissists are, are not very good at doing um unless it's something that that allows them to come out on top and allows them to to present themselves in a in a very favorable way so whilst something like that might might begin um it's not going to last very long now what about any tells are there? Uh, I mean, I think we we've long heard that like a, like a psychopath is like a a chameleon, say, um, sort of trying to imitate human emotions. Is that an actual tell? And and are there any examples you can point to? 
So, yeah, um, psychopaths will very often um, blend in to the, the circumstances in which they find themselves in order to, to get the things that they want. Um, and, and it is often very difficult, um, especially when you have somebody who is very skilled in reading the emotions of others, somebody who's very skilled in knowing what behaviours um, that they, they need to display. Um, what I found in, in cases of psychopathy that, that I've looked at is their reaction when you call them out um, on their behavior. Because um, a person who, who isn't psychopathic, um, somebody who has empathy for others, somebody who feels shame and guilt and remorse, if you call them out on some bad behavior, um, they're likely to, to display particular behaviors in response to that. Um, they're likely to, to look kind of ashamed to, 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 to immediately say things like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that, that kind of thing. Um, when you call psychopaths out on their behavior, often they just, they just simply brush it off and don't confront it and just kind of change the subject. Um, and there isn't really any display of, of, um, remorse or, or anything like that. Now, when, when people are involved in these relationships, how how do they go about escaping these relationships and what are some of the signs that they should look for if they have family and friends who are telling them that this is not a healthy uh, relationship or a healthy way of life? Well, looking at the cases that I've come across in terms of um, domestic abuse and control and abusive relationships, um, some of the key things to look out for, firstly, are isolation. Um, so if, if you have a friend or a family member who is in a relationship and, and they're suddenly kind of disappearing off the social radar, they're not going to regular family gatherings or regular social get togethers. Um, that's, that's something that, that could be, um, being encouraged by the perpetrator who will be trying to isolate that individual from their sources of social support uh, because people are much easier to control when they are on their own. Um, they're, they're much easier to manipulate when you don't have those, those critical voices in the background. So that's, that's something to look out for. Um, also, when people um, stop attending their regular commitments like work, um, or, or like doctor's appointments or, or those, those types of things, um, social things that they, they go to regularly. That's, that's, um, another sign. And I think that the key thing that I'd say to anyone who knows someone who they suspect is in, um, a relationship where they're being abused or controlled is, is, is to resist the urge to jump in and impose more control on them. Um, very often, um, this tends to happen in cases of, of abuse victims in that they, they may escape a, a controlling and abusive relationship only to become subject to even more control, whether that's at the hands of the state or social services or, 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 or medical professionals. And in these kind of situations, people have lost their autonomy, they've lost their sense of individuality, and they need to be actually given the opportunity to make decisions for themselves and to, to make choices and exercise their, their freedom. So resist the urge to jump in and say, this is what you should do. Um, this is what's going to happen now and, and give people the space to, to do, do things in, in their own time. How can you attempt to make someone aware that you think they're uh, being, you know, or under someone's control or potentially being abused? 
I think the, the key thing to do is not to kind of in, impose that on them in a conversation about it. So um, I've had in, in my personal life, actually, I've had a, a situation with a friend who was in a relationship um, in which she was being controlled and abused. And I, I said to her, I've noticed that you know, there are a few things that are different about you and I'm worried about you and I'm concerned about you. And I think this might be what's going on in your situation. And I gave her a copy of a book um, called Power and Control by a lady called Sandra Hawley, who um, is the chief executive of a, a large charity called Women's Aid. And that explains what um, what coercive control is and what domestic abuse is. And I, I basically said, look, I'm here for you if you want to talk about it. I'm, I'm not putting you under any pressure to, to do anything, but just know that I'm here and I'm not going to judge you um, for, for, your, for your situation. So it's about knowing how to give people space, but also knowing how to be there for them at the same time. Is this coercive control character trait something that is learned? In terms of the perpetrator? Yeah. I think so, because it, it can't come out of nowhere. Um, so, so people who are coercively controlling towards others, that need to be in control, the kind of behaviors that you need to exhibit to, to gain control of another person, they are learned behaviors. And and there are, there are so many cases that, that I've come across in my work. If you dig into the history of the perpetrator, um, they are not from kind of psychologically healthy backgrounds um, in terms of the lives that, that they have led. You know, they are, as I, I said earlier, there are biographies of trauma and abuse and, and neglect and, and those, those sorts of things. And I think one of the things that we really do lack in society today is is education about what a healthy relationship looks like because we have all of this knowledge out there now about domestic violence and abuse and coercive control so we know what all the bad stuff looks like but we don't always know what a good relationship looks like so i think we we really do need to start emphasizing that and, and the importance of that in in really early education with with quite young children about respect and about boundaries and about being kind to one another yeah, well said on that. Um, there definitely needs to be more education for a good relationship. There needs to be more energy and more effort put into uh, controlling yourself and having respect for your significant other. And it's just something that I feel has recently come along. I mean, we're talking about more Murray's disappearance back in 2004, and that feels like it was just yesterday, but we're talking like 16 years now, going on 16 years, and we're not saying anything about any relationships that she had in her, in her life, but we're just trying to wrap our head around where uh, what her mental state was and, you know, did it come from relationships that she was experiencing, not specifically speaking of any relationship, but there was something that was the trigger for her leaving uh, UMass Amherst and going up to New Hampshire. And back in 2004, there wasn't a lot of education. I mean, today, you just said, like, there's not a lot of education on what a good relationship is. In 2004, there was even less. So I can imagine somebody wanting to isolate themselves if they were in a bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's 
it's it's so important looking back at, at cases where they haven't been solved, where they are unresolved, and, and making sense of what that person's life looked like at the time, trying to think how they were feeling at that particular point in time, what were the, the pressures and the stresses that, that they were experiencing. Because even though 16 years may have passed since Maura's disappearance, that the human condition hasn't changed very much at all um, in terms of the, the types of things that upset us, the types of things that that, that we we get stressed about. Um, so, so I think, you know, we, we often do need to keep it simple and, and go back to basics and, and not overcomplicate things. Yeah, it's, it's tough to do when there's a lot of information that's put out there, uh, you know, in social media and regular media, it's tough to put things into context appropriately. It is absolutely. And I think the, the first thing that I do, if I was looking at a case like this would be to go back and see what what exists that is in the victim's own words or the person who's disappeared own words um because so many interpretations have been put on Maura's behavior um but 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 what was she thinking what was she feeling what artifacts and what evidence do we have that is unfiltered that has come from Maura herself and and that is where I'd begin yeah exactly and that's what uh, a lot of the community is striving towards. And um, I just want to get to uh, one more question. I think it might be my last question on, on the wound culture. What are some of the warning signs of of someone who is infiltrating a family in order to, um, you know, for their own personal gain, their own ego, looking into uh, their loved one's disappearance or, or cold case? So I think... It's very difficult um, when you've experienced a, a traumatic event like a loved one going missing um, because you want all of the help that, that you can get um, uh, and individuals will come forward and, and volunteer to help in, in various different ways and many of them will be genuine and that's, that's one thing that I really do want to emphasize here is that most people are fundamentally good, most people are fundamentally well-meaning. Um, it's the ones that, that aren't that, that seem to, to get an awful lot of publicity and, and a lot of space. And they're the ones that we, we seem to hear about. Um, but I, I'd look at people who were, were putting themselves first, people who were keen to, um, to, to step into the public spotlight, um, people who were, were getting things, um, either material things or, or other kinds of benefits. Um, from from their involvement with the family, and you've really got to look at, at what what outcome is somebody's behaviour suggesting that they're working towards. Are they working towards finding a resolution in the case, or are they working towards something else? So I'd I'd look very very carefully at at, at the, those sorts of motivations because they will come out in people's behaviour. Their reactions to particular situations um, will also be quite revealing. So are they concerned about the impact on themselves, or are they concerned about the impact on on the family? I lied. I have one more question because <laughs> okay, your answer your your answer was so good it made me think about this. Is it typical for these types of people to introduce alternative theories that might feed into a conspiracy because the family is desperate for answers and they know that that is a good way to um, wrap themselves up in it? 
Well, I think anything that sustains the spotlight on them, anything that's, that keeps the attention and the focus on them is is going to be something that that they will use um and and conspiracy theories and and alternative explanations if if that's something that can be rolled out um which will will put the focus back on them if they feel that they they've kind of gone out of focus or they've lost control over the situation a bit maybe that is the type of thing that that kind of person would do When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.